Hello, everyone, and welcome to the February 6th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Skarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The Court of Appeal upheld a serious and willful misconduct award against a construction company in Sacramento. Here's what happened in the unpublished opinion of C.C. Myers Incorporated versus WCAB and Bruce Lockwood. The only issue presented in this case was whether the employer's failure to provide a spotter for the excavator at the time of Bruce Lockwood's injury amounted to serious and willful misconduct. The injury occurred at a construction site near the intersection of Highway 50 and White Rock Road in Sacramento County. The employer, C.C. Myers Incorporated, was engaged in the construction of a bridge linking the eastbound and westbound lanes of Highway 50. Claimant, Bruce Lockwood, and three others were engaged in placing steel shoring plates along the walls of a hole that had been excavated earlier. The shoring plates, weighing approximately 850 pounds each, were being moved from a stack to the holes using an excavator with its bucket removed. The foreman on the job site, Kenneth Barth, stood near the hole and assisted in positioning the plates between vertical I-beams already installed in the holes. This process was repeated many times as each plate was installed in the hole, with the excavator moving along a consistent path each time. The crew had been held over to complete the installation of the plates in preparation for another crew to install rebar in the holes the next day. At the time of the accident, the crew had been on the job for 13 and a half hours, and it was starting to get dark. During one of these operations, the excavator ran over claimant Bruce Lockwood's foot, causing injuries so severe that an amputation was required just below the knee. The excavator was equipped with a horn and backup alarm that were working on the day of the injury. Although co-workers heard the backup alarm, Lockwood testified there was a lot of noise at the time from the traffic overhead and the machine itself, and he did not remember hearing the alarm prior to the injury. Lockwood filed a petition for increased benefits based on allegations of serious and willful misconduct. He alleged various acts of the employer amounted to S&W misconduct, including not having a spotter on hand for the excavator, allowing the operator to use his cell phone while operating the excavator, using the excavator as a crane, and failing to have adequate first aid at the job site. Witnesses testified that use of a spotter was a common practice in the industry, and if a spotter had been on hand, he would have stopped the excavator before it drove over Mr. Lockwood's foot. Claimant succeeded in obtaining the SNW award after reconsideration. The board indicated that under the circumstances presented, use of a spotter was part of the employer's duty to provide a safe place to work. The employer appealed, and the Court of Appeal, in the unpublished opinion of C.C. Myers Incorporated versus WCAB and Bruce Lockwood, sustained the S&W award. The Court of Appeal concluded that the WCAB could reasonably have inferred that Mr. Barth, the foreman, turned his mind to the particular danger posed by use of the excavator under the affirmatively, and he affirmatively chose to proceed without a spotter in order to avoid further delay. However, in refusing to award attorney fees, the court conceded that this was a close case. The court could not say there was no reasonable basis for the petition by the employer, and they therefore denied claimant's request for attorney fees. 
The Court of Appeal confirmed that the workers' compensation exclusive remedy does not bar emotional distress damages in sexual harassment cases. Here's what happened in the unpublished opinion of Melissa Routh versus Kern County Probation Department. Melissa Routh filed a Superior Court complaint against Kern County Probation Department. She alleged she was sexually harassed and then subjected to discrimination and retaliation when after reporting the sexual harassment, she says her complaint was ignored. One of the harassers was given a job promotion and she was subjected to internal affairs investigations and demoted. Ralph further alleged her termination was a pretext for retaliating against her reports of sexual harassment and requested reassignment and that the department's action caused her emotional distress. The department filed a motion for summary judgment. With respect to her claim of intentional infliction of emotional distress, the department asserted the conduct of his employees was not extreme and outrageous and the claim was barred by the exclusive provisions of the Workers' Compensation Act. The trial court granted summary judgment on this claim, finding it was barred by the Workers' Compensation Act, and the claim it appealed. The Court of Appeal in the unpublished opinion of Melissa Routh versus Kern County Probation Department concluded that if any of Routh's FIHA claims survive summary judgment, Routh's cause of action for intentional infliction of emotional distress is not subject to the exclusive provisions of the Work Comp Act. Such a claim, if based upon the employer's harassment or discrimination, is founded upon actions that are outside the normal part of the employment environment. However, the court went on to say that an intentional infliction of emotional distress cause of action requires a showing of extreme and outrageous behavior beyond all bounds of decency. The conduct must have been committed with the intention of causing or reckless disregard of the probability of causing emotional distress and the plaintiff must have suffered severe emotional distress. The court concluded that given an employee's fundamental civil right to a discrimination-free work environment, by its very nature, discrimination in the workplace is outrageous conduct as it exceeds all bounds of decency usually tolerated by a decent society. Accordingly, if properly pled, discrimination will constitute the outrageous behavior element of a cause of action for intentional infliction of emotional distress. The summary judgment with respect to Ralph's causes of action for retaliation, discrimination, wrongful discharge in violation of public policy, and intentional infliction of emotional distress were reversed. Workers' compensation reform has provided employers with multiple layers of control over benefit and medical care. One process, the Utilization Review, is created to provide a scheme for determining if a request for authorization for medical care meets standards of evidence-based medicine. But a lawsuit filed by Electronic Waveform Lab Incorporated, the developer and manufacturer of the H-Wave instrument, alleges that UR Doctors and EK Health, a large provider of UR services to insurance companies, have conspired to deny coverage for the H-Wave device, disparage the device to others, and intimidated prescribers. The complaint alleges a violation of the Cartwright Act, intentional infliction and interference with prospective economic advantage, and defamation and trade libel. And this week, their suit moved a step forward.
The Utilization Review defendants moved to strike the entire complaint under the California anti-slap statute. Under California law, to survive such a motion, the plaintiff must prove, among other things, that there is a probability that they will prevail with their suit. After reviewing the evidence submitted by the plaintiff, Superior Court Judge Michael Stern denied the Utilization Review defendant's anti-slap motion. The court found that H-Wave offered sufficient evidence to show a probability it will prevail at trial on its claims. In so finding, the court noted that numerous declarants testified under oath that defendants made disparaging statements that the H-Wave device would never be authorized and no review was necessary. In addition, the court received expert testimony from Susan Honor Vanagrove, the former manager of the State of California Division of Workers' Compensation Medical Unit. Judge Stern said that Ms. Honor's expert testimony demonstrated that the defendant's actions go beyond their review capacity and outside their opinion-rendering or decision-making powers. Officials from the company say that this case has industry-wide ramifications for those organizations who seek to control the utilization review process beyond the statutory rules. H-Wave's counsel, Nicholas Roxborough and Joseph Gnola of Roxborough, Pomerantz, Nye, and Irani are thrilled with the outcome of this motion. Removing unwarranted barriers to providing evidence-based treatment modalities such as the H-Wave, they say will help allow injured employees to return to work. And now our fraud report. Francis Ann Doherty, 51, of Millbrae, was arrested, booked, and arraigned in San Francisco Superior Court on 57 felony counts related to payroll theft and workers' compensation insurance premium fraud. Her bail has been set at $750,000. This arrest is a result of a joint investigation headed by the San Francisco County District Attorney's Office and detectives from the California Department of Insurance. Doherty is the owner of Doherty Painting and Construction, a painting construction company that was awarded numerous public contracts with the city and county of San Francisco, San Francisco Unified School District, and other public agencies. Contractors on public work projects are required to pay their workers the prevailing wage and report to the public agency on a weekly basis that the appropriate wage was paid. Doherty allegedly reported that her employees had been paid the prevailing wage on 23 different public projects. Though, through the investigation, it was determined that the Doherty painting workers were only paid a fraction of the prevailing wages that were required. Doherty allegedly provided fraudulent information to the public agencies that were doing compliance audits in an effort to conceal the prevailing wage violations. Doherty also allegedly provided fraudulent employee payroll information to Redwood Fire and Casualty and Zurich Insurance Companies, which ultimately allowed her to pay lower workers' comp insurance premiums. The estimated loss to Redwood Casualty and Fire and Zurich Insurance is approximately $108,000. The estimated total loss in regards to insurance premiums and wages is approximately $700,000. And in regulatory news, a San Francisco factory has been fined $700,000 for a dangerous ammonia leak. Columbus Manufacturing Incorporated, a plant in South San Francisco, which makes salami, 
deli meats, and cheeses for sale at retailers such as Albertsons, Bristol Farms, and Costco is still mopping up after poisonous gas leaked twice in 2009. The company last week said it will pay a penalty of nearly $700,000 to the Environmental Protection Agency and the U.S. Department of Justice. Columbus has already paid $850,000 in fines last year to San Mateo County. The first accident in February 2009 released 217 pounds of anhydrous ammonia into the air. The next leak created a 200-pound plume of the gas, which forced a full evacuation of the factory and several nearby businesses. Off-ramps from the nearby Highway 101 and several local streets were also shut down. Seventeen employees were hospitalized, one for four days, and 30 workers from downtown biotech company Genetech were also sickened. Ammonia exposure can cause temporary blindness and skin irritation, while extended contact can result in lung damage and even death. Columbus has settled claims with Genetech. Officials say the company has taken corrective action with its employees. The meat processing facility has already spent $7 million upgrading its emergency protocol and refrigeration systems, now fully contained in an enclosed building along with the ammonia that it uses. Legislation aimed at uh, relieving shortages of crucial drugs used to treat cancer, chronic pain, and other illnesses may get momentum when lawmakers decide whether to attach it to a must-pass funding bill for the U.S. FDA. The number of drugs in short supply rose to 220 in 2011 from 56 in 2006, the year a clear trend started to emerge. To compensate for drug shortages, some doctors have had to postpone care or use second-best drugs or more costly alternatives. President Barack Obama made shortages a national priority with an executive order in October and urged Congress to quickly pass legislation to address the issue. Despite bipartisan support, two bills that would force drug companies to tell the FDA about looming shortages have been struck in a deadlocked Congress this year. A third bill was just introduced. The House hearing is part of the process to renew FDA user fees or the funds companies pay to the agency in exchange for faster review of drugs and devices. Congress must renew the Prescription Drug User Fee Act every five years. The current legislation is due to expire this September. Since fees from makers of drugs and medical devices provide more than a third of the FDA's funding, the bill often serves as a vehicle for broader FDA-related changes. The Senate is also working on including the issue of drug shortages in the FDA user fee legislation. Representatives John Carney, a Democrat from Delaware, and Larry Buxon, a Republican from Indiana, proposed the third drug shortages bill. Among other measures, this legislation would force the FDA to speed up its review of applications from companies that want to change or ramp up production to address shortages. It would also require the Drug Enforcement Administration to raise its quota for certain controlled substances if they are needed for a drug in short supply. 
Manufacturers have said the DEA's quota system has prevented them from increasing production of drugs such as Adderall to treat attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. With Senate Bill 983, which passed in 1993, the California legislature established the Construction Carve-Out Program, which appears in Labor Code Section 3201.5. The law permitted employers, groups of employers, and employee organizations involved in the construction industry to use collective bargaining as a way to create alternatives to the traditional workers' compensation dispute resolution process. The passage of SB 228 in 2003 amended Labor Code Section 3201.7 to allow non-construction employer groups or groups of employers and employee organizations to participate also in carve-out programs. All employers participating in ADR or carve-out programs are required to report annual claims and payroll data to the DWC. The resulting data set for the 2010 carve-out report contains data from 19 construction carve-out programs and four non-construction carve-out programs as well. The administrative director of the DWC is required to prepare a report to the legislature based upon information reported by these employers. The DWC produced a 56-page report, and here are some of their conclusions. In 2009, over 3,000 claims were reported, of which 47% were medical only and 53% were indemnity. From 2008 to 2009, the total number of claims reported decreased by 82 claims, or 2%. Overall, 2009 was the first year more claims were filed by non-construction programs than construction programs. For total programs, the average paid cost per claim was almost $5,000. This average was 52% less than the almost $10,500 average paid cost in 2008. In 2009, carve-out programs reported resolving 59 litigation claims at mediation, 12 at arbitration, 5 at the WCAB, and none at the Court of Appeal. The average pricing level for carve-out employers was generally less than for all other employers except in the manufacturing sector. And the average reported loss ratio was slightly less for carve-outs than for all other employers. In summary, the rates charged on these policies after application of schedule rating credits and debits appear to be comparable to those charged on other policies. The DWC has now adopted regulations on public disability accommodations. These regulations were approved by the Office of Administrative Law and filed with the Secretary of State on January 19th. These regulations will become effective, therefore, on February 18, 2012. The regulations provide guidance to the public on the division's disability accommodations process, which is intended to provide individuals with disabilities equal access access to the division's activities, programs, and services. In 1990, the Americans with Disabilities Act was passed by Congress to combat discrimination against individuals with disabilities. The intent of the law is to protect individuals with disabilities from discrimination and to enable them to participate more fully in society. The law requires that reasonable accommodations be provided to individuals with disabilities at work 
and also that physical structures and programs be made accessible to individuals with disabilities and to remove barriers to their participation. California has passed similar laws that protect disabled individuals from discrimination and denial of physical and programmatic access to public services and facilities. This rulemaking action proposes regulations to set forth a procedure by which the DWC will comply with its obligations. Under the new rules, the division will provide reasonable accommodations to individuals with disabilities. A request for a disability accommodation may be made in writing on an optional disability accommodation request form or orally to a disability coordinator located in each district office. Written notice of how to request a disability accommodation shall be posted and made available to the public. Upon submitting a request, the requester must enter an interactive process to assist in determining what, if any, reasonable accommodation may be provided. The interactive process includes providing additional information and timely correspondence with the division as needed to address the accommodation request. A requester may seek review, review of accommodation decision within 15 calendar days of the date the accommodation decision is received. A requester seeking review of an accommodation decision shall submit a request to the division's statewide disability coordinator setting forth the disability accommodation request, the accommodation decision to be reviewed, and the reasons for review with any relevant documentation provided. And in financial news, after declining for four consecutive years, California workers' compensation insurers return on net worth showed signs of improvement in 2010. This conclusion was based upon the data from the National Association of Insurance Commissioners, which was compiled, analyzed, and released by the California Workers' Compensation Institute. The data puts California insurers' 2010 return on net worth at 5.2%, up noticeably from 4.6% in 2009. That ups the state's ranking from 25 to a tie for 18 out of 46 states that operate without a monopolistic state fund. Workers' Comp 10-year average return is 5.6%. This is less than one-third of the record 16.4% return noted at the 2006 peak. The California market has seen wild swings, but the current uptick uptick still comes as good news. Workers' comp wasn't the only line that was up from 2009 to 2010, according to the data. The average return on net worth of all lines in California rose to 9.7%, up from 9.4% the year before. And in other news, according to the 2011 Liberty Mutual Workplace Safety Index, the most disabling workplace injuries and illnesses in 2009 amounted to $50.1 billion in direct U.S. workers' compensation costs. After adjusting for inflation, this year's costs decreased 6.5% from 2008. The annual Workplace Safety Index identifies the top causes of serious non-fatal workplace injuries based upon information from Liberty Mutual's workers' compensation, insurance claims, the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, and the National Academy of Social Insurance. 
Researchers collected data about injuries that caused the employee to miss six or more days from work and ranked those injuries by total workers' comp costs. The top five injury causes, overexertion, fall on same level, fall to lower level, bodily reaction, and struck by object accounted for 71.7% of the total 2009 cost burden. Overexertion maintained its first place rank. This event category, which includes injuries related to lifting, pushing, pulling, holding, carrying, or throwing, cost businesses $12.75 billion in direct costs and accounted for more than a quarter of the overall national burden. Fall on same level ranked second as a leading cause of disabling injury. With direct costs of $7.94 billion, this category accounted for 15.8% of the total injury burden. Fall to lower level ranked third after $5.35 billion in costs. Bodily reaction, which includes injuries resulting from Free bodily motion such as bending, climbing, reaching, standing, sitting, and slipping or tripping without falling ranked fourth at $5.28 billion. Struck by object took the fifth place ranked at $4.64 billion. The remaining five injury causes in the top ten each accounted for less than 5% of the direct costs of disabling injuries in 2009. Highway incident represented 4.3% of the total injury burden at $2.18 billion. Caught in, com- caught in or compressed by injuries resulting from workers being caught in or compressed by equipment or objects accounted for 4.1% of the total injury burden at $2.04 billion. Struck against object accounted for exactly 4% at $2.01 billion. Repetitive motion with related injuries accounted for 3.9% of the cost burden at $1.97 billion, and assault or violent act accounted for 1.2% at $0.59 billion. Overall, the top 10 cost categories comprised 89.3% of the entire cost burden of disabling work-related injuries in 2009. The overall real inflation-adjusted direct costs of disabling workplace injuries decreased 4.6% between 1998 and 2009. And with that, that's all our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And please remember you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and our special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or iPod by searching for WorkComp Academy in the iTunes Store. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Skarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.